0: So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Genesis. We'll get there in just a little bit. We're going to go through a couple of stories today. And where we land this 4th of July, Greg already gave it away, is through the discipline of integrity. And if you have this one figured out, it's kind of like prayer. I don't know if everyone actually... Arrives at this place called integrity in their life, where everything they do, everything they say, everything they think, they just—they just exude integrity in their life. Well, what we do know is that on some level, everybody, everybody is some type of hypocrite when it comes to integrity defining their life. Best definition I've ever heard. I'm sure you've heard it too. It's—I uh, don't know where it really has its roots. If it's—it's it's not like a certain scripture, but the best definition that I've ever heard of integrity. And maybe you've heard it. You can say the rest of it with me. It's who you are when no one is what. You guys said like five different things. <laughs> it's who you are when no one is looking. For me, it's who you are when no one is in the passenger seat when you're driving. That's just the, the Lord's honest truth. So as I was getting ready for this, I was just thinking about my own life and feeling really just, man, like I don't add up. But it actually, the, the word integrity derives from a Latin word. Integritas. I don't even know if that's how you say it. I tried to sound like like with some substance. It means this. Th- this is worth writing down. Integrity actually means this. It means wholeness. It means wholeness completeness, entireness. And the idea is that integrity emphasizes the entire person, not, not just part of him or part of her, but the entire person in their being, their righteous and honest through and through, that, that who you see from a guy talking to you on a stage is the same person you see behind you in a McDonald's drive-thru when you take too long, okay? Or, or, you know, just fill in the blank, those areas. That's one of the beauties about living in a small town, is that you only get out so many get-out-of-jail-free cards with your character and with your integrity. But it's this idea that it's the consistency in how you live. In the literature that we're going through as a church, there's some research that is suggested to read. There's a book called The Day America Told the Truth. It's an older book now. It's a book on integrity, And it's an extensive opinion survey that guaranteed the anonymity of the participants. And here's what they found. I believe it's in the 80s. That a third of all AIDS patients admitted they had not told their partners that they had AIDS. I I thought that was shocking. Some of this stuff, I thought, ah, that makes sense. I think they're actually not still being honest. I think it's higher. There was another question. Maybe you've seen a movie like this. I think there's a movie about something like this. Uh, What would you do for $10 million? 25% 25% of people admitted with anonymity that they would leave their families, that they would abandon their families for $10 million. 23% said that they would become a prostitute for a week. You, you just oohed over that. I think it's actually higher. I don't, I don't know, right? I mean, I just think $10 million, there's a lot of messed up people out there. I don't, I don't know. Here, here's one that's really an ooh. Seven percent. Seven percent doesn't sound like a lot, but think of it in terms of, what is there in here, 350, 400 people in the service, maybe a little more, I don't know. Okay, so seven percent of you would translate to 20 to 30 people in this space right now at New Life, and then however many people are listening online from a lake house right now, on the 4th of July, seven percent said that for $10 million, they would kill a stranger. Ooh, right? That means like if you don't know me, there's about 30 of you right now, 10 million, I'm gone, okay? <laughs> I'm out. When it comes to work, people admitted to, out of a 40-hour work week, goofing off around seven hours, this one doesn't surprise me at all, I think people are still lying, I think it's higher, half said they call in sick when they're not sick at all. Shocking, right? Shocking. More work stats, in the 80s when the wolf of Wall Street was big, 80% of top business executives admitted in a Wall Street Journal uh, article that they had at some point in their career driven under the influence of alcohol, contrasted to a blue-collar workforce that admitted 33% of doing the same thing. 75% of people admit to at some point stealing work supplies for personal use. Theft in the workplace, 60% of all inventory shortage is due to employee theft. And you think in terms of shoplifting, 30% of all missing inventory is only due to shoplifting. And so if you are hiring people, you have a twice as much likely percentage of a chance of losing material to the people that work for you instead of the people that come into your store. 10% is clerical error. Here's something that you might already be able to assume. If something is missing in the workplace... Six out of seven times, it's a man who took it and not the woman. Does that surprise you? That doesn't surprise me. We need to hire more women at New Life. <laughs> and so today, we're, we're looking at this idea of integrity. We're going we're gonna to look primarily through the lens of someone who had amazing integrity. Uh, we're going to close with somebody who lacked some integrity but had a heart after God. And it's going to kind of be a compare and contrast but I want you to follow this soap opera with me in the Old Testament in the book of, of Genesis. There's a guy in the narrative that's a young man who, who, who grows old and, and, and through the narrative of the scripture, uh, but he's so significant his name's Joseph. We named our first child Joseph. Joseph is a great name in the Bible. He's so significant that the creation account gets two chapters. Joseph, do you know your Bible really well? Like all these nitty gritty details? This is what I found out. I already knew it because I've preached on Joseph before. Joseph in Genesis, two chapters for the creation, 13 chapters for this guy. He's an amazing, amazing. Amazingly godly man. In his family line, his great-grandfather is Abraham. His grandfather is Isaac. His dad is Jacob. He is a bit of a spoiled brat. His dad loves him more than the other boys, if you know the narrative. But he's godly. And he gets a bad rap. And so his brothers, because he's favored, hate him. They want to kill him. They end up sending him off to slave trade at the age of 17 years old, and here's what's so interesting about Joseph. He he really is a picture of integrity in scripture. And one of the cool things about Joseph, if you come in here a teenager to church this morning, is that he's in this part of the storyline, 17 years old. And so what that tells us is just because you're young doesn't mean you're stupid. Just because you're young doesn't mean you need to go blow your hand off in fireworks today and be irresponsible and go get drunk on the 4th of July or or whatever that looks like for you. You can be young, you can be God-fearing, you can be a man even though you are 17 because the Bible does not define age as a primary dictator for maturity like we do. Just because you're young does not mean that you have to make stupid mistakes. And so as the story picks up, Joseph is off to the big city against his will He's living as a slave, he's been traded in by his brothers, he has a master whose name is Potiphar, he's most likely a virgin by all uh, common predictions, the way the narrative unfolds, and now he is sitting in his master's home, and the Bible says that he's not just good looking, he's very handsome, all right, he lifts weights, I, I mean, he's just, he's in tune with being good looking, he, he's a good looking guy. He's in that situation now that every parent dreads, where maybe modern day context, he, you know, he's off to college, he's making his own decisions, dad's not there favoring him anymore, dad doesn't know where he's at, he's been left for dead, and now he's gonna get seduced by an older woman. And the question now becomes, will Joseph be faithful to God? How many of you know it's one thing to be faithful to God when your environment's controlled? You tracking? It's one thing to be faithful to God when your environment's controlled and your parents are strict and youth group is a part of your everyday week routine and you're in high school and your dad would kill you. It's a whole nother thing that freshman year of college. Can I, can I get an amen? amen? Right, now no one's watching and your integrity's on the line and I, what I love about New Life is that no one made that mistake in college. Right? No one, but everybody else that's a pagan that's not in church today, some of them struggled. And so the question then becomes, will he be a man of integrity in a tempting environment where mom and dad aren't around. Nobody knows his business. Nobody even knows who he is. But Potiphar sees that this kid is different. Potiphar brings him in his home. He should have never had this type of prestigious position as a slave. But here's how the story unfolds. The Bible says in Genesis 39, you can follow it on the screen. You can find it on your phone. You can find it on the Bible that you brought to church. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, the Egyptian had brought him before the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. And underline this, if you like to underline, the Lord was with Joseph. When the Lord's with you, people take notice. The Lord's with Joseph. There's something different about this young man. He has character. He loves God. And as a young man, he became a successful man, verse two, And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Question for you. Do people know that God is with you? Do, do people see that in your lifestyle? I'm, I'm not asking do they know if you go to church or not. I'm, I'm not asking you if they think that you're religious. Do they say something's different about this person? I'm actually going to follow this person's example in my life. Even if you're young, do people know that about you? If you, were put, if you were put in a court of law, would you be convicted for your faith? Or would you be found innocent because there's no evidence to convict? Joseph lives this lifestyle of truth in his life. He puts God on display. The Bible says that Joseph prospers. And so every good story the plot starts to thicken. Here it is in verse 4. So Joseph found favor in the sight in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put up charge in charge of all that he had. Young guy, Potiphar's rich. Potiphar's powerful. He doesn't get a piece of the workload. He's in charge now of everything of this man. And from the time that he made him overseer's his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So now the story happens, okay? Verse 6, if you're sleeping in church, wake up. This is good. Verse 6, so he had He left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife, right, just let that sink in, let that sink in, his master's wife enters the story and cast her eyes on Joseph and said this. This is a bold woman. This is a woman you stay away from if you're married or single. She said, lie with me, no pretense. Right? She just says what she wants. Verse 8, Joseph, teenage Joseph, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of, of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. It's like the Garden of Eden. There's just one thing you can't be a part of, right? Can't sleep with my wife. He says this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Follow it in the Bible. How can I do? I'm going to make a point about this in just a second, so underline it in your mind. How can I do this sin and wickedness against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, because sin can be residual like this, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, right, the story thickens, verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She doesn't give up. She's persistent. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. She's saying, he raped me. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant who you brought among us came into me and laughed at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house." How is this story playing out? She is absolutely liar, liar, pants on fire. None of this obviously happened. She's just getting angry because she's been rejected, and now she's setting him up, which should be a death sentence on his life. She is a seductive woman who has to be taken note of in this story because she looks like a lot of people. And it's obviously not just women that do these types of things. It takes, what, two to tango, and it doesn't take long before we know somebody with a narrative like this in their life, and let's just be very honest now, there's narratives like this in our church. We don't come to this place perfect with a squeaky clean testimony. Men, if we live long enough, I'm gonna burst your bubble for a second. Even if you are average, which is most of you, okay? I don't know why you're laughing. If you live long enough, someone will find you attractive, even if you're not very attractive. I mean, praise God, that woman you married finds you attractive, okay? But, but I think you read this story, and you go, oh, here's this young man, he lifts weights, he's off to college, you know. I mean, she, she likes him because he's attractive. Let's just look at this through a broader lens so we can all connect to it. Most of us, look at me, most of us, are pretty average in our VBS shirt this Sunday morning, okay? And here's what's scary about infidelity. It's not for the elite, it's not for the reality TV show, it's not for those that are constantly in the gym, it is for the average. It is for sometimes the seemingly less than desirable, and there's this huge misconception, I wanna save you a massive amount of heartache in your life, there's a huge misconception that people have affairs primarily because of their hormones, and and just as a therapist and as a pastor and walking with people through the trenches, praise God, this is, we just had our 20-year anniversary Wednesday, Ann and I have had all sorts of stuff, if you really knew us, where you go, man, they made it 20 years, praise God, but we've been faithful to each other, and I have seen people fall on this sword time after time after again, and the idea would be that if you look like Joseph, then there's going to be a lot of people that chase you. Now I don't look like him, so maybe that's true, but I can tell you this, there are other reasons that people are unfaithful. Someone, if you live long enough, will find you attractive, even if you're not very attractive. They'll think you're perfect in every way and the solution to their every problem because they're looking for an escape, and they're not primarily doing that because you are the best thing since sliced bread. They're doing that because they're looking for an escape, and it's not about their hormones, but they are lonely, and they love attention, and you are a means to an end in their life. Most affairs aren't even geared towards lust as much as loneliness, and because most of us, look at me, most of us are average, most of us are still not exempt, and the stats back that up. And so this woman is lonely, don't know the details, and she's chasing after a young man. The reason affairs are so tempting is because you are making these decisions with your ego, not just your hormones, and your ego, look at me again, your ego, loves attention. Men, someone that gives you this false reality that you are so much better than your wife actually knows who you really are, okay? And so she's giving him this attention, he doesn't budge. He just stays on the path with his integrity. And he knows that even at 17, he's at this crossroads. He can go here or he can go over here, and he carves out this line in the sand because he's a young man that loves Jesus, or loves God, and he refuses sexual temptation. Verse eight says he didn't just think about it, he didn't say, well, let's take it slow, well, what if you had a little time away from your husband, you know, once you're separated, or once you're divorced, then maybe something could come between us, no, he just says, this is not happening, and the Bible says that it's continual resistance in the same path, this woman is persistent, She's not satisfied with what she has. And so she probably knows his daily routine. She knows when he's in the house. She knows when he's all alone. And she's persistently pursuing him. And here's how the story story ends. He does the right thing, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way the servant treated me. His anger was kindled. He thinks his wife's been raped. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confirmed, fined, and he was there in prison. Joseph gets a raw deal. And so things work out in the end, but in the temporary, it's a train wreck for him. He does the right thing. He stands up for what's true. This is what integrity looks like. Joseph says, no matter the cost, I'm gonna do what's right. He does what's right when no one's looking. He does what's right when no one believes him, and as a result, he ends up in prison. If you know the full story, later he's interpreting dreams for Pharaoh, and and then he gets this break, and he ends up in leadership, but I want to use him to start, or really as the lion's share of today's message, to just give you a picture. This is what, if you want to know, this is a visual of what integrity looks like. Defined as, Integrity being what you do when no one is looking. What you do when it has the capacity to cost you everything. And what I want you to write down is this. Integrity, this is what it looks like. Integrity starts with a standard. It starts with a standard. It draws a line in the sand. Choose whom this day whom you will serve. And it starts with a standard that stands outside of your own morality. And Christianity is built, Judeo-Christian values are built on this idea that there is something outside of us that dictates to us what right is and what wrong is in a world that is floundering like a fish that's just been caught in the lake and flopping all over the place because here's what's different about our faith versus the world. Our world has a morality that's shifting so fast our heads are spinning, amen? How many of you can't even keep up with the changing morality of our times? Like like things that you thought, would never be okay 20 years ago now are not even okay but celebrated? Are you tracking? And how many of you in your 40s? You remember growing up in the 90s? How many of you in your 50s and 60s? You're like a whole nother case study. You're going, I didn't have a clue. I was raising my kids. I didn't even talk to them about certain things because I thought, well, who cares about that? Like no one does that. And then you're going, I probably should have talked to them. Integrity starts with a standard, and if the world dictates our standard, then we're going to be like a floundering fish in the, coming out of the water with no purpose and just bouncing around to whatever ideology we would have, believe, in the time period that we're in. Joseph says this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Remember what I told you I was going to bring this up? Against God. Against God. Against God. Here's the common logic of the text. My boss has been good to me. I should have been out in the fields with the other indentured servants, but here I am in the house. Here I am running his finance. Here I am accumulating his personal wealth. Here I am a person of significance, even though I should be a person of nothing. And, and the common logic would be Potiphar is a pretty good guy. He spared me a lot of pain in my life. I'm a nobody, he's making me a somebody, and so when his wife comes to me and tells me I'm a good looking young man, I can't do that to him. That's the way the world would view integrity. I mean, that's just common logic, and there's a part of his heart that probably believes that, but Joseph sees it at a young age. He says, this is more than me. It starts with a standard. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's standard is this. Regardless of what I think my main moan for making moral decisions is, What does God command? That's a word for us on integrity. Regardless of what 85% of social media tells us is okay and what war drum they beat on the social issue of the day, the the Bible is the standard for our morality. You want to know if you're a Christian or not? Who do you look for for truth? Integrity starts with a standard. It starts with a line in the sand. Only God has a standard that is unchanging. Only God has a standard that can be trusted. In the 40s and 50s, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, (laughs) I thought of that. That wasn't in the sermon notes. My dad was born. My dad had his birthday, his 68th birthday on Friday. He was born in '55. About 5% of girls and 10% of boys in the 40s and 50s in high school were sexually active. Fast forward 60 years, 70 years, 70% of girls, 80% of boys are sexually active in high school. I know that this is going to ruffle feathers because it always does, but this is the truth. 50% of people are living together before they're married now. I think it's actually even higher. Divorce rates... In the 50s, we're single digits. Today, they're over 50%. Divorce rates in the church in 1996 in evangelical Christian circles were 4% higher than the national average. In the 80s, pornography rentals were a whopping 75 million. We thought that that was atrocious. Today, billions of Internet clicks. In the billions each year. More revenue from this mode of operating, than football, basketball, baseball, hockey, every professional sport combined. Integrity is who you are when no one is looking. Write this down, every stand, every stand has a standard. Every stand has a standard We all have standards that guide us. It's not if we have a standard, but whose standard we follow. In the literature that we're reading together, G.K. Chesterton says, morality like art consists in drawing a line somewhere. And Joseph's standard was, I know I'm a college kid. I know I'm good looking, and I have a life ahead of me. I know that in my flesh I'm prone to wander. But look at me. He says, this woman's not my wife. That's it. She's not mine. Every stand has a standard. This is Potiphar's wife. She's not a follower of God. I'm not married to her. A translation for us several thousand years later that woman is not my wife. That man is not my husband. I'm getting off Snapchat. I'm not going to that goofy party. I know that he's not in love with me. He's in lust with me. I know that that attention feels good, but every stand has a standard, and I am choosing to live outside of my own common morality of what seems right and wrong in 2022, and I'm looking to this manuscript known in 66 books as the holy word of God that is the ultimate truth in my life, and my integrity starts with a standard I'm not going to budge. And if you don't start at that point, you will waffle Our identity isn't being wanted by someone. It's being fully known by Christ. Here's the next thing about integrity. Looking at Joseph, this is his story. His integrity, your integrity, gives you a voice. He starts interpreting these dreams of Pharaoh. And within a chapter, he again rises to power. He ends up providing for his family who betrayed him, and he has this long lineage after him. And his ministry was nothing without his voice. And he gains his voice by taking a stand. The church has laryngitis. The church has laryngitis. How many times have we just stood by and said nothing? Or have our actions contradicted what we say we believe and the church becomes impotent? Christian versus non-Christian, a study done by Sherman and Hendricks. Christians are almost as likely to falsify income tax, steal time from their employer, tell people what they want to hear, selectively obey laws, and cheat in school. There's a whole bunch of them, that's just a few. And so our stance is our standard, and our integrity is our voice. And we lose our voice because it speaks with so much hypocrisy in a Christian church it says do what I say and not as I do. Do as I say not as I do movement. And so we look just like the people that we're ministering to and the people that we're ministering to are saying, why would I want what you have? I already have what you have. I don't have the same wordsmiths, I don't have the same you know, ideology specifically, but my life looks just like yours. Joseph has this loud voice because he takes this firm stance. And here's the last point, and I'm going to just go to a different character for a second and talk about it through this lens as well. But, but the third thing is this. This is his story. Integrity precedes blessing. I mean, so many times, I'm guilty of this too. We, we look at the Bible and we pick out these characters who are awesome, and we go, you know, life actually gets harder when you become a Christian. We said that in men's study a few times this last semester, and that, that is so true. Can you relate to that? you thought, and one of the things that, that hung you up on Christianity is you became a Christian, you thought all your problems were gonna go away, and then all of a sudden you had more problems. I know that that can be true, but there's also this reality that integrity precedes blessing, and Joseph is the case study for that. Blessings often follow obedience. And so Joseph's stance was not just, I'm gonna do a certain thing, but his stance was, I'm committed to living in a certain way. And there was a massive there was a massive blessing in his life that followed, right? So the bad approach would be, I'm gonna make a short list of of things that I won't do because those are things that religious people stay away from. And Christianity is so often defined by the don't do's. I'm not gonna do this and I'm not gonna do that. And and because I don't do these three to four things and I'm gonna be a good Christian, Joseph's life was different. He said, I'm gonna live a life that glorifies God and serve him faithfully with integrity, And what I'm going to do is then going to dictate what I'm going to cut out. That's how Joseph lived. He knew what he was trying to accomplish, and what he was committed to dictated what he cut out. And so those things that we commit to, those things of God that he's called us to, will start to eat away at the things that God does not want for us. And as a result, there's going to be blessings in our life. There is a world of heartache that we can avoid if we do things the way God has designed us to do things. I mean, you could pick a variety of topics, whether it be your earning potential in the workplace through having integrity, or you could just follow the narrative of this study, of this storyline of our sexuality. God has a plan in a culture that's attacking sexuality in the church like never before. It's unprecedented. We sit back and we're silent on these issues because we don't want to seem bigoted and we don't want to seem like a hypocrite and over half the church is addicted to pornography and so it's silent on the topic. God actually has a blessing in doing things his way because his way is better than ours. God's view of intimacy is is better than our view of intimacy. He he is pro-intimacy. He understands that, that it is for us in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, and it sounds so narrow, and God is saying, but I'm the creator, and I'm the designer, and when you live this life of integrity, when you go against the grain, integrity precedes blessing in your life, and I'm telling you, I have a view of sexuality that is absolutely in your best interest, and I am calling you to be fruitful and to multiply. I told you in Genesis 2 before I ever had Joseph into the scene that it's not good for man to be alone, that it's good for man to be emotionally connected to his wife. There's a blessing in everything that I tell you to do, in every way that I've called you to walk in integrity. Something cool, just as a side note, I want to cover this real quick. There are three words for sex in the Old Testament, to lie with. And so that, the, the, the narrative there is David and Bathsheba. David finds Bathsheba. I'll get to that in just a second. I'm going to close with that. He sees her from a rooftop. He also says she's very attractive. And then the Bible says he lies with her. It's a physical act. There's another narrative in the Old Testament that says that he, then this is what she says in Genesis 38 as well to go into. That's another way of talking about sexuality. And, and it's usually in terms of prostitution. Both are physical descriptions of sex not being sanctioned by God. A primary physical description. And then the third one is in Genesis when it talks about Adam and Eve and then the two become one. And do you know what it says? It says that they know each other. It says that they know each other. Do you wanna know why you have a dysfunctional intimacy in your life? There could be a lot of reasons but I guarantee you the primary reasons are those first two things of the way that you view your sexuality. You don't know intimacy unless you understand it's to know someone, to love someone when they're lovable and when they're unlovable. That you know everything about them for the last 22 years and that you give your life for them because they are your other half. That's intimacy. God knows this about us, that there's a blessing that comes from following Christ no matter what. And it's this foundational reality of integrity in our lives when we take a stand. And that there's a blessing and that God actually knows better than we know even on these issues of sexuality and immorality in our life. And he has a better plan in a better way. And, and I was just gonna end there until this morning. And I thought this, I thought, but what about for the majority of us that haven't lived a Joseph life? Who in here could say, man, my life looked exactly like Joseph? 17 years old, killing it. Looked good. Nobody knew it because I was so above reproach. So I thought, well, I can't end yet because my life wasn't Joseph. There's this other guy in the Bible that I just talked about who had a warped view of sexuality who finds a woman that's married, and he's looking over his kingdom, and he's now has an ego because a lot of infidelity is related to ego and not just hormones. He has this ego that says I can have what I want, when I want, with whom I want. No one could do anything about it. And so David looks down, finds Bathsheba who's married and he decides that he is going to do whatever the heck he wants and that he is going to sleep with this woman, and he takes it to the point of she's married, sending her husband to a battlefield, and having him murdered so that he won't get caught because he gets her pregnant. You know the story? I mean, that, that's some serious Jerry Springer stuff. He's doing whatever he wants in his own arrogance. His integrity is at a one in this moment of his life. But the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. And here's how you know it. It's not because he doesn't fail. It's because when he's confronted, how he responds. And there's this narrative between him and this guy, Nathan, a prophet. Nathan confronts him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He says, David... I know, I know that you are the all-powerful genie and you think that you are all that and you can do what you want, but let me tell you a quick story. He says, there are two men that I've come across. One is rich and one is poor. The rich guy has a lot of sheep and cows and the poor man has one little female lamb that he bought. He raised this sheep. He grew up with it in his home. This is what the Bible says. And with his children and this sheep, this little female sheep would eat his food and drink his cup And the sheep rested in his arms and was like a daughter to him. Can you get this picture in your mind? This is Old Testament. I can't even imagine having that relationship with a sheep. But this is the narrative. And and David was a shepherd, and so he's going, man, this is intense. And he says, no, David, track with me. Follow me. He says, the man has a visitor, and he's rich, and he's powerful. and, And instead of, when the visitor comes over, he has to feed him, instead of taking his one of many sheep, or cattle and killing it so that they can have a meal. He takes this guy's one sheep that was like a daughter to him. That would eat his food and drink from his cup and rest in his arms. And he takes it and he kills it and David is so just beyond angry and he looks at Nathan and his anger burns the Bible says and he says the man who did this deserves to die. And David without skipping or Nathan without skipping a beat looks in this young king's heart and says, "You're the man. You're the unfaithful one. You're the one who has everything and murdered someone who had nothing. This guy did nothing but honor you in war and he had this wife named Bathsheba that he loves and you took him and you slaughtered him on the battlefield. Because in your own ego, you had to have one more. And David falls apart and that's why he's a man after God's own heart. Nathan says, why do you despise God's word by doing what is considered evil? And David, and David, check this out. Here's the closer. And David, just like Joseph, understands this one thing about integrity and taking a stand. David says this, I have sinned against God. Right? Not not Bathsheba. Not Bathsheba's husband, hey, he's sinned against all of them, right? I've sinned against God. And the good news is his story wasn't finished. And the good news is our story isn't finished. And there is still time for the narrative to be completed because if David could be forgiven for abuse of power on that level, then the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient to cover all of our sins. That body that was broken, that blood that was shed, allows us a redemptive opportunity to walk in integrity and the integrity that he's called us to. That there's still this legacy that's not being completed yet. I woke up this morning, went to church, my wife sent me this news story. Most of you probably wouldn't know him, but if you run in AG circles, maybe you heard of him. There's this guy named Cal Thompson. Someone in our church right now is a friend of his. They just got back from um, where we, in Illinois. They were in Chicago on, on Cal's 30th missions trip there. He was a, a, a youth pastor for years and years and years at a, a very big church, First Assembly of God in Fargo. Have you guys heard of that church? Uh, and, and so Cal did this thing that nobody does. He's like a one percentile. Instead of using youth ministry like a stepping stone, it was actually a calling in his life. And so he's reached thousands and thousands of youth with the gospel in the last 30 something years this little short bald man that would come preach at Trinity Bible. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't remember hardly any chapels from Bible College. I just remember him. I would go see a basketball games Christian School in Fargo over the years and he would know my name. And I thought, how does this guy know my name? And he was just a better guy than me, so he knew my name. He knew everybody. And he just had this integrity about him where he walked this path of integrity over the course of a long period of time in the same direction. He was just doing what God had called him to do. My wife grew up Baptist, but she knew all the cute guys were at first assembly. So she went to that youth group, and she developed a relationship with Cal. And it wasn't a sin because it was before me. Hey, and so she knew Cal. She introduced me to Cal. And I thought, man, one day I want to be like Cal. And she sends me this news story in the Fargo Forum where Garrett is quoted in it, who's in church right now. And, and it says, you know, Cal Thompson, 60, I think six years old, goes on to be with the Lord, and he's an absolute pillar of our community. And I can tell you this, that service is probably going to have to be like in the Fargo Dome or something because everybody knew Cal. What made Cal great? He was short. He was a little plump. He was bald. He always told this story. He had this disease where his hair fall out. He had no eyebrows. He was, he was bald. He'd tell that story in chapel, and I thought, wow, that's crazy. I, did, I didn't even understand that medical condition. But it's like he was really nothing special in the flesh, but everyone adored him because he had integrity. He had this Joseph lifestyle. Now he's sitting with Christ at his throne. This is what it looks like to serve God faithfully like David, to serve God faithfully like Joseph. And to say, I'm going to give him all of my sin and all of my shortcomings, and I'm just going to do what he wants me to do, and I'm going to live a life that's above reproach because he died on a cross for my sins, and I love him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word this 4th of July. We thank you for the freedom that we can have as we walk in the integrity of the gospel. We just pray as we leave this space and we, we go on our way and hang out with our family that, that this weekend even we'd have opportunities to look differently and to live differently and to serve you faithfully. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing at New Life. We pray that you'd have your way. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.